Okay, good morning. So we continue our study of Emunah, and again, the goal is each week to uh, just take a little different unit of Emunah, a different perspective. We're not trying to learn a complete Sefer or learn based on the Parsha or anything like that, but each week, an injection of Emunah. The premise of our getting together every Wednesday morning for our Emunah self-help group is, support group, is that Emunah is something that dissipates. You need to keep it going or else it's like a muscle. If you don't use it, it atrophies and it dies. The more you use it, the bigger and the stronger it grows. So if Amuna is that muscle, we come for our Amuna workout on Wednesday, uh, on Wednesday mornings. So we're going to continue. Last week we studied a piece by Revolbi, the Mashkiach, the great Mashkiach of Yerushalayim and his Ali Shore. And if you remember, Revolbi last week spoke about the fact that when you answer Amen B'Kokocho, if you respond to Amen, I forgot we were going to make this an Amen group as you drink your coffee, answer everyone's Amen. But if you answer Amen with all of your effort, all of your energy, all of your devotion, then it opens the gates to Gan Eden. And remember we spoke about why Gan Eden? Why aren't you promised to be in the world to come? Which is normally the promise when you do something virtuous. And the answer was that God is hidden and concealed in this world. We struggle to know with certainty that He's there. We long to feel His presence. There's a, an iron curtain, there's a barrier between us and Him. But if you answer Amen, if you look to see God in your life, if you live life with Amuna, then you pierce a hole in the curtain, you open the curtain, and even while your feet are firmly planted here in earth, nevertheless, we continue to be, uh, we are, we have a presence in Gan Eden even at the same time. Okay, so now we continue. This is another insight of Revolba, also on the area of Chinuch. Penina, you can grab a chair, there's a chair here. Or from there, either one. Okay, anyone, anyone missing a copy? Anyone a copy? Okay, there you go. Again, this coffee and sign up if your name is not on the list. So we've talked about what Amuna is. We've developed actually in the Shabbos afternoon class, we did a five-part series on what Amuna and Bitachon is. Obvious reasons it's not recorded. But we differentiated between Amuna, which is the knowledge of God's existence, and Bitachon, which is the absolute knowledge of His presence in our lives. Just this past week, there's a couple copies here. Anyone? Thanks. Um, but Bitachon, the Chazanish says, is not to think, well, whenever... It's all going to work out the way I want it to. I trust God that everything's going to work out the way I want it to work out. A lot of Met fans were thinking that, and it did not happen for them. Baruch Hashem. But it doesn't always, it doesn't always work out according to our... I know that was a gratuitous knock for a group of women, but listen, I'm a Yankee fan. I had to... That was an, I've never cared about a baseball game that the Yankees weren't involved in as much as enjoying the Royals come back in the ninth inning. But anyway, that's just... Uh, from my brother-in-law. So, the bitachon, um, many people make the mistake of thinking, what's bitachon? Whatever challenge I have in life, whatever issue of uncertainty I'm going through, I believe, I trust that Hashem is going to make it work out the way I want. It's all going to work out the way I want. But the Chazanish says, that's not bitachon. That's bitachon in yourself. That's believing that you really are the infinite, omnipotent one who knows everything and deserves to have the world operate according to you. Deserves for everyone else and everything in the entire world to work the way you want. But that's not bitachon. Real bitachon is not believing that God will make things happen the way you drew it up. Real bitachon is placing your trust in God that whatever happens, whatever happens, He's in charge. It's not random, it's not chance, it's not happenstance, it's not simply nature. That whatever happens to us in life, it's because God ordained. And there's meaning and purpose in order to the universe, and that all that God does is for the good. 
Whether we understand it or we don't understand it, everything is for the good. So that is the definition of emuna or the definition of bitachon. To live life every day with the awareness, with the cognizance that there's a God in this world who created this world, but moreover, He's intimately involved in my life. From the cold that I have, to whether my car started, to significant things, trying to have children or nachas from our children, or earning a livelihood, or, or whatever the case may be, God is involved in my life, and it is the submission, it is placing myself in His hands that I can't control everything. I do my best. I take my initiative, I put one foot in front of the other, but however it turns out in the end, I trust that it is for my best. And by the way, is this not exactly what we ask of our children? Does anyone, anyone else come in that needs? Is it not exactly what we ask of our children? We say to our children, when they're young, teenagers, or even older, that I don't expect you to love every decision I'll make for you. When I told you you couldn't go out Saturday night to that event or party or group outing, when I told you that you couldn't experiment with this, that, or the other, when I told you, I don't expect you to be happy with me or love me, but here's all I ask from you, my beloved child. Know that I'm not doing it to hurt you or to punish you. I'm not doing it out of chance or because I'm in a bad mood. That everything I do for you is out of love, the deepest recesses of my heart, what I believe is best for you. That's all I want from you. Don't love it. Don't be excited about it. Don't welcome it. I understand if you're disappointed by some of my decisions for you, my rules for you. All I ask is that you recognize that our decisions are not arbitrary or random. They're well thought out and they are based on the fact that we love you and want what's best for you. And if that's the attitude we bring to our children, that's exactly the attitude Hashem has towards us. What He wants us to feel towards Him is, look, we may not be happy. You know, a bad diagnosis or struggling to have children or struggling with livelihood or, you know, the safety of our brothers and sisters in Israel. There's no shortage of things to worry about. We don't have to be happy with everything that God does. But He's our Father and what He wants from us is the acknowledgement, the recognition that we are not simply um, at, the, at the whim of nature, of chance, that it's from Him and that He does it having our best interests in mind. So Ravoba asks, Ma'u so if that's bitachon, if that's what it means to live life with bitachon, and by the way, we, we spoke about on Shabbos, that if you live that life of bitachon, the benefits to you are unbelievable. It's not just I'm asking you to live a life of, of philosophical pain and angst. Believe in God and place your trust in God and stick with God. And it's not going to be easy for you, it's going to be miserable for you, but you've got to do it. I'm telling you that I promise you, my personal guarantee, for whatever that's worth, my personal guarantee that if you live your life, if we live our lives more like that, that every day, whether we're stuck in traffic, somebody, you know, dicked our car, dinked our car with, the, with their um, shopping cart at the supermarket, whatever, whatever it is, we stop, we take a deep breath and we realize everything's from Hashem, it's for a reason, somehow this is for the good. The results are you will have improved health, you will worry less. You will have menuchas hanefesh, menuchas hachayim, a more peaceful, tranquil, serene life where you're not always on the edge. Because the Chazunish says that this level of bitachon, this demand that we live life recognizing that we are not just subjects of chance and randomness, but there is a God, there's meaning, purpose, and order to the universe, and everything He does is for the best of us, that demands something which is a difficult challenge, particularly for Jewish people, maybe particularly for Jewish women. And it means that it is forbidden, there is a Torah prohibition against worrying. 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 Now, why are we genetically predisposed towards worrying? That's a good question. But there is a Torah prohibition against worrying. What is worrying, after all? Every time you worry, not about your own performance, but you worry about what will be. 
Whenever we worry about things that are out of our control, let me ask you this. In the history of time, has that worry ever made anything better? Worrying never makes anything better. Not only does it not make it better, it doesn't make time pass faster, it makes makes time go slower. I don't know if it makes you more prepared because I wouldn't say that's worry. Somebody said that to me after the last time I mentioned this, that someone sent me an email, I thought it was a great point, that we need the fight or flight. We need, right. sometimes worry is what protects you and guards you and gets your guard up and the adrenaline rush and the things you need to survive. But that's not worry. I, I, I don't know what the right word is there. That's, that's um, fear. Yeah. No, aware, Self, concern, self-awareness. self-awareness. Yeah. Is a little mindfulness. I, I just, worry has the negative connotation. Worry is a wasted emotion. Uh, you're describing, Andrea, a more positive emotion, which is it's a mindfulness or it's a living with a concern or it's living with a self-awareness or it's living where you're planning. So if you say, I don't know what's going to be in 10 years from now, I know that, I'm just giving a random example, right? That life expectancy is growing much longer. Your money has to last you longer than it ever did. So I'm going to plan to save better. I'm going to plan to make sure I have. So that concern about my future um, is a healthy concern because it means I now save and I prepare and the results are positive. But there's a difference between that concern which leads to positive action and being paralyzed by worry. What's going to be? I don't know what's going to be and what will happen and who would take care of me and where will I go and what will be and what will be. I'll be hungry. What will be? What will be? What will be? So concern is a healthy emotion that can get channeled into action items, into initiative. Worry is an unhealthy, purely destructive, it's responsible for Ashkenazi, Ashkenazi genetic GI disorders. There's nothing good that comes, there's nothing good that comes from worry. And when you're worried, time moves slower. Not, you're late, you're sitting in traffic, you're worried, well, what's going to be, I'm late, yeah. Does traffic get, get open up faster or slower? It takes forever. Whereas if you said, look, I can't control it, it'll be what it'll be, I'll have to figure it out and fix it, but what's the point of what's the point of stressing or worrying or losing patience? Is there something in between, like concern and worry? Like maybe there's something in the middle, like a little bit of worry, mm-hmm. so that you're not like so extreme. Like worrying, the way you describe it is, we're like really almost. Maybe, maybe I, you know, I don't want to get lost in this, but I think the principle is what's important. And for everybody, they have to find what works for them. In other words, you need a little level of, of, of concern, enough concern that, that mobilizes you, but not too much concern, which then becomes worry, which paralyzes you. In other words, so concern, which, which moves you, concern, which gets you to act, that's good. Worry, which does the opposite, it paralyzes you because there's nothing you can do. Right? So you underwent the test, and I know this is like superhuman, what I'm about to describe. You underwent the test, and you're waiting for the doctor to get you the results. I know it's superhuman to say, yeah, don't worry, you pretend like it didn't happen. That's not possible, of course. But we should, at least, we should at least aspire not to be paralyzed by that worry. The test doesn't come back faster. It doesn't make the results any better. You deal with what you have to deal with when you have to deal with it. You can't control time. You can only get to the end of every the end of every day. So I'm raising this only again as an example that if you live your life with bitachon, your health will improve, your blood pressure, your GI issues, your uh, whatever, your, your serenity in life, your menuchas and nefesh is going to drastically improve. You're going to worry less. You're going to worry less. You will be overcome with a, a sense of calm. It's a, it's a huge avoda. That's why we're getting together every Wednesday to work on this together in our support group. It's a tremendous work because those feelings are natural. They swell up in us all the time naturally. But to not, not allow ourselves to be overwhelmed by that wave and, and have it crash on our head and instead say, stop, I'm learning about this. I've been thinking about this. I've been working on this. I'm not going to feel that way. 
I've given this example before. I don't think I did it in this group. I think in the class. But when I was first learning about Amun a number of years ago, working on this, and I was driving back from a, a wedding late at night, and I had to stop and get gas off 95 in, in, in uh, a very dangerous neighborhood. I had no choice. I was out of gas. And I got out of the car, and at first, like, my heartbeat, you know, went up. And I was looking around at the chevra there, and I was a little nervous about uh, what was going to be. I didn't exactly, you know, I'd just come from a wedding, and... I was a perfect target if you wanted to ask someone for their wallet, let's just say. So I was, I was nervous. I felt myself getting nervous. And then all of a sudden it struck me. I'm learning and teaching about Amuna. My nervousness is not going to make the situation better. Now you'd say, you know, go in the car, lock the door. Like, okay, so if there are action items to do, do that. But assuming I was doing that, any nervousness beyond that is not going to protect you. It's not doing anything. So at that moment I said, you know what? I needed to get gas. I didn't have a choice. I'm acting prudently. I stopped. I got gas. I'm waiting in the car. I'll leave when I'm done. I'm not, I'm not worried. There's nothing more I can do. The rest is in Hashem's hands. Whatever's meant to be will be. I will never forget the feeling of calm that came over me. It was like taking a Valium. It's a natural Valium. Without needing the Valium, if you stop yourself and put in perspective and, and remind yourself that I've done the best I can and beyond that, it will be what it'll be. I, bitachon, in Hebrew, in Israel, bitachon is security. Right, the guy at the mall who's going through your trunk before you can come in on his shirt, it says, Bitachon, security. It's security. You put your trust in Hashem, He gives you security. To say, I do the best I can, and beyond that, there's nothing I can do. I've done the best that I can. So the benefits are, there's another benefit. You stay calm, your health improves, you don't get angry. What's the root of anger? The Talmud says, If you get angry, it's as if you worshipped an idol. Why? You lose your cool, you know, you tripped over your kid's toy in the middle of the room, you stubbed your toe, it hurt, you got angry, your kid. That's, what, what idol are you worshipping? And the answer is, when you get angry, what's the core, what's the root source of anger? All anger is, something didn't go the way I wanted it to. You didn't act the way I planned for you to act. Things weren't set up the way I wanted them to behave. Things didn't unfold the way that I diagrammed them to unfold. So I got angry. I lost my cool. Because it's something you did or said, or something the universe did, I lost my cool. I got angry. So who am I worshipping when I get angry? The Avodah Zara, the idol that I'm worshipping is myself. It's my ego. I'm angry that things didn't unfold the way I drew them up, the way I expected them, the way I demand them. I'm worshipping myself. But if you realize that, look, you do the best you can, and not everything goes according to your plan. There's another plan. And you let go and let God and say, it is what it is. So then... You won't get angry. You won't get angry because you realize that, again, anger is a terribly self-destructive, unhealthy, purely negative emotion. Nothing good comes from anger. You could, again, be concerned. You can advocate for Israel because you're deeply upset and disturbed by the media's bias and so on. But that's different than anger. Anger is a pure emotion. All uh, physiological studies show this. When you're angry, the blood rushes from this part of the brain to the other part of the brain. You become like an animal, not a human. You stop thinking rationally. And you act in self-destructive ways. You do stupid things. People have done terribly stupid, permanently self-damaging things in a moment of anger. Anger is nothing good. So what's the best way to work on anger? The best anger management 101 is amuna, is bitachem, is in every circumstance to say... Take a deep breath. You know what? It's not the way I drew it up. It's not what I planned, not what I expected, not what I wanted. Okay, too bad. I'm going to deal with it. That's life. I'm going to deal with it. What do, what do I have to do now? And beyond that, I put my trust in Hashem. There's a reason, there's a plan, there, there's a, a cause. Okay, we haven't even gotten to this yet. But yeah, there were a few comments, people. Yeah. yeah. I mean, Rabbi, it's true, getting 
upset at, at a red light or traffic is one thing, but you know, when your loved one is dying or you know something big, it's, right. it's a lot bigger. No, no question about it. And there are many, many, many profound emotions that are legitimate. Grief, loss. Ironically, perhaps the only place I think it's okay to be somewhat angry is to Hashem. Right? I'll, t- I'll tell you this for a moment. I think, you know, I, I learned this from other people in really extraordinary ways. But you see it in our partios that we just read and that we're reading now. That our patriarchs and matriarchs, Avram in particular, gave us license to be disappointed in or to challenge or to protest Hashem. I won't use the word angry at Hashem because angry is never a positive emotion. The Ramban and the Ramban, Maimonides and Nachmanides, both agree that all qualities and character traits all have potential positive place in our repertoire of behavior. All of them. That's why they're called, what are character traits called in Hebrew? Midos. What's a mida? A measure. They all belong in the recipe. The question is to what degree, what measure, right? You know, if you, put, if you have no pepper in your soup, then it has no taste. If you put too much pepper in, then you destroy the soup. So in life, there are certain qualities which it needs a little bit of sprinkling. If you have too much of it, you're going to ruin the recipe in life. There's one ingredient, one spice, one behavior that the Ramban and Rambam agree has no place in any recipe, doesn't belong in our spice cabinet at all, and that's kas, anger. The Ramban wrote an extraordinary letter to his son. It's printed in many Sidurim. Some people read it every single day about how to stay calm and how to live life. It's a wonderful short letter the Ramban wrote to his son. Ramban or Ramban? The Ramban, Nachmanides. And the Rambam, in Hilchos Deus, in, in his Mishnah Torah, in his Code of Jewish Law, also writes that even though the Rambam is the famous spokesperson for the Shvila Zahav, always going the golden mean, on this he says you need to be extreme to never get angry. This is the one area, the Rambam says two areas. You should be exceedingly humble and you should be extreme to never get angry. Anger has no place. So even towards God, anger has no place at all. But what does have a place, and what I would even humbly submit to you, God expects from us, is at times to protest what He's doing. Sometimes He does it because He's looking for our protest. And when you protest, is there a greater expression of faith in God than to protest something He's done? Would you protest something or someone that's a figment of your imagination? Would you be disappointed by somebody who you're not really sure exists? I learned that 10 or 12 years ago when I did the funeral of a Holocaust survivor. And when I was sitting with her family to prepare for the funeral, I didn't know her, I hadn't met her. I asked, um, you know, tell me, what was her, was she a proud Jew? What, what was her religious orientation? So they all thought about it. And most of them answered, well, she wasn't observant. After the war, she really gave up observance. She gave up Judaism. Her son-in-law said to me something I'll never forget. And I'm so grateful to him for this insight. He said, my mother-in-law had unbelievable faith. And you want to know how I know she had unbelievable faith? She spent her entire rest of her life so angry at God for what he had done to her family. And you're not angry at someone you don't believe exists. Who do you have the most anger at? Not the bystander who you don't even know their name. You don't expect them to intervene in your life. You're angry at your mother, your father, who were supposed to protect you, and they didn't. And, that, and, and so perhaps the greatest expression of faith in Hashem that you believe He's your father is when you say, Dad, where were you? Or where are you? Now, you can use that feeling of where were you or where are you to, as an excuse to walk away from God. Or like Avram Avinu, you could use it as a means to get closer to God. So Avram, God says to Avram, you're my beloved Avram, 
you know, you're incredible. I was going to talk about this a little bit today, but I see that we already have next week's topic. But um, God says to Avraham, when the rest of the world missed the point of creation, you got it. And so I'm charging you, I'm giving you the mission of teaching the world what life was really supposed to all be about. And because you're so precious to me, I can't hide it from you. Says the Torah in last week's parasha, could I hide from Avram what I'm going to do to stone him? I can't. So God says, news delivery, Avram, got to let you know, just a heads up, I'm going to be destroying stone. And what does Avram say? I would expect him to say, okay, you know, thanks for the courtesy of the heads up, but you're the omnipotent, infinite, perfect being, I guess whatever you say goes. If that's what you think has to be, you know, okay. Is that what Avram says? No. I defer to you? I submit to you? No. Avram says, how could you? How dare you? I'm embellishing a little bit. But I protest. I object. God, if there's 50 righteous people, how could you do this? I object. And God says, okay. I agree with you in principle. Thank you for the objection. Objection, what do they say in court? Sustained. Sustained. Objection sustained. Noted. So God, uh, God says, no problem. Find me 50. Okay, then I'll struggle. 45, 40. Then he can't find, he can't hold up his end of the bargain. What do you see from Avraham? What, we are the progeny of Avraham. What did our great Zayda teach us? That when God sometimes declares, you know, here's, here's a terminal illness, here's, a, here's bad news, here's, does He want us to take it laying down? Does He want us to say, okay, you're the perfect God, if you decided that, then we're not going to try to go to a doctor and fix it, or we're not going to try to make a living and pay for it, or whatever you decided. <laughs> God, Avram teaches us, our great Zayda teaches us, there's nothing wrong with our saying, hey God, what's the deal? How could you do that? How could you do that? Avram says that, Moshe Rabbeinu says that, Moshe says, God, show me your face. Which our commentators understand, when, God, when Moshe says, God, show me your face, what he means is, show me the way you see things. I don't get way, why do bad things happen to good people? And good things are happening to bad people. I don't get it. I know low lives who are prospering and I know incredibly righteous people who are suffering. God, show me your face. Let me into your perspective. Let me understand the way you run your world. And what does God answer? You could see the back of my head, Moshe, but nothing more. What's the back of my head? So the commentators explain, it means the best you could do is understand in retrospect. Maybe after the fact, you'll see the way the pieces of the puzzle came together. But you'll never understand it in real time. You'll never understand it prospectively. After the fact, people say, you know, I lost my job, it was the most miserable thing, but I made a career change and I'm so much happier and if that never happened, I never would have done. After the fact, we can often in life, if we go through the process of the exercise or the effort, we can see how things worked out amazingly in our favor, even when we thought they were terrible. After the fact, you can see the back of his head, but not the front. But let me ask you again, was Moshe, did he just take it? Did Moshe just... Did Moshe just accept it? No, Harini Naskodacha. God, I protest. I object. Why do bad things happen to good people? Why are good things happening to bad people? I demand to understand better. So that creates an unbelievable precedent for us. And I think very, very counterintuitively, very counterintuitively, that protesting Hashem is an unbelievable expression of Amuna. It's an unbelievable expression of Amuna. Because you know what? There are people who claim to have unbelievable amuna, and they hear bad news and they just go on with their life. So I ask you, do they really believe Hashem's their father? If your father told you that he was going to do something bad to you, would you not say to him, can I, can I please appeal that decision? Would you rethink that? How could you do that? I'm your son, I'm your daughter, don't you love me? 
you don't really believe in God. I would even go so far as to say, I'm not sure you really believe in God if you don't protest, if you don't object, if you don't negotiate with Him. So very counterintuitively, I don't want to say the word anger, but being disappointed in Hashem and protesting and objecting to something He's doing is, is, um, a, form of, is a form of emuna. So you're right, the little things, don't worry, don't sweat, don't get angry, bitachon, 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 that's easy. The big things, the big things, the bitachon is not to say, it's all good, Hashem is great, everything He does is for the best. No, the bitachon on the big things is to say, Hashem, I have such bitachon in you, I'm protesting. Now, sometimes He overrules your objection, and He says, I still know what's best for you, and I appreciate you objected, and your objection brought us closer. Your objection made me know that you believe I'm here. Your objection was worthwhile because it drew us closer. But your objection's overruled. I'm still the judge. And this is what I determined is best in this circumstance. And then the challenge is on us. What do we do then? Do we say, well, I objected and God overruled my objection, so I'm out of here. I don't believe in him. He doesn't love me. Or like Avram and Moshe, do we put one foot in front of the other and stay the course, feeling even closer just by the process of having, of having objected? Yes? When you get a diagnosis of somebody or somebody's in the hospital and you get all the women together to say to him, that's the same thing. That's exactly what you're doing. Yeah, absolutely. We've, you know, we've done that. We've had over the last three years two, issue, two incidents of, of babies who, had, who, were in, who were in dire circumstances and we've convened emergency Tehillim gatherings. And actually, I began each of those gatherings, all those gatherings, by referencing this idea that we've gathered Hashem to protest your decision. I mean, it's a different frame of saying it. Our Tehillim is not like fluffy, maybe God exists, maybe He doesn't, but you're supposed to say words you don't really understand because it makes you feel righteous and religious, and then you go home and you go on with your life. That's not why you get together and say Tehillim. Right? It's not just so that you know, that's what you're supposed to do because you read other communities do that and it seems religious and righteous. And No. You do it because what you're saying is we've gathered to issue a group protest. This is a rally, God, not against you per se, but it's a rally to influence your decision. We're here to, to, that's what a Tehillim gathering is. This is a rally to influence your decision. Because we all believe in you so much, because we all have such bitachon and such emuna, that not only Hashem do you exist, but you control everything. That this baby suffering with this illness is not a bacteria or a virus or a fluke of nature or science or they're not a piece of a statistic. We so believe in you that we've gathered here to say, God, we know this is you. And we're here to object. Now, thank God, those objections were sustained. Baruch Hashem, in those cases, those children are doing wonderful and they should continue to, to thrive and to flourish. Amen. It's not always. That's the challenge of Amun and Bitachon, is you have Tehillim gathering, Tehillim gathering, Tehillim gathering, and Chas Vashon, you get bad news. What do you do then? But the Tehillim gathering has to be seen in context. That's exactly what we're doing is, we are imitating Avram Avinu. Avram Avinu said, how could you do that? How could you destroy Stom? How could you destroy this family? How could you destroy this child? That's exactly what we're doing. We're imitating none other than Avram Avinu. Don't we do the same thing, though, in our, in our, in our real life? <clears throat> the people we really care about are the people we're going to go head-to-head with. That's exactly we're right. Gonna, we're going to protest. I don't like the way you're treating me. Can we renegotiate? This That's exactly that. right. The person you have no expectations from right. and feel no relationship with... Okay, so the coworker or the casual acquaintance said something, did something, you, know, you could care less. It was offensive in any other context, but you don't have a relationship, you didn't expect anything, you don't care, you're not invested, so uh, who cares? But the person you're close with behaves in that way? It's a tribute to the relationship that you're bothered by their behavior. That's not the way a friend acts. 
It's not the way a family member acts. There's loyalty. So exactly the same with Hashem. Very, it's a totally different perspective. It's totally counterintuitive. Is to say that, and, and, and I have to tell you why I share this, because you know, as, as, a, as an active Rav, I interact often with people dealing with family loved ones who are in, in terrible end-of-life circumstances or have suffered terrible pain directly themselves, have dreams that are shattered and are unanswered, and they think that Judaism demands of them to suppress their anger at God and to just blindly say, I'm supposed to... They, they think they're supposed to say, well, whatever Hashem wants, who am I to protest? This is what Hashem wants. I guess this is for the best. And I see my role is to say to them, no, that's not what Judaism asks of you and it's not what Hashem demands of you. Yes, in the end of the day, once the judge bangs his gavel and that's the final verdict, you've got to figure out how to live with it because that's the final verdict. But until then, he wants you to make an argument after an argument after an argument an opening statement, a closing argument. He wants you to influence him. He wants you to protest. He wants you to object. Not only should you not feel guilty for doing that, that's exactly what you're supposed to be doing. And too many people feel guilty. They feel sometimes, somehow they're deficient or inadequate in their amuna if they're not ready to just say, I love God, this is what God wants, this is for the best, that's great. But that's not what Hashem wants. You wouldn't say to him if that, as he pointed out. You wouldn't daven if that's it. The whole premise of davening is, I'm trying to influence what Hashem wants. I mean, think about it for a moment. That's a separate question for another time. It's a very powerful question. Is why do we daven at all? Why do we daven at all? Many of our great commentators have, have asked this question. Rabbanel, the Asha, all kinds of commentators have asked. Why do we daven? If God is omnipotent, infinite, and perfect, He knows what's best for us. We have a very finite, limited perspective. Right? So, so I'm, I'm arguing with my 10-year-old about something they want to do. Should I defer to their judgment? Or do I have more life experience and wisdom and perspective that, that I should insist on mine? Who should win out? Right? I think as parents we would all agree that we hear what they have to say. We hear what they have to say that right, my Tamara is a little lawyer. She's, uh, <laughs> and she has great persuasive arguments. When she was like seven years old, I tried to put her to bed. And, Why don't I do her to bed now? I said, because it's your bedtime because you're seven years old. So she said to me, Abba, Age is just a number. <laughs> Who cares? It's a number. That doesn't mean why I have to go to bed. Why can't I go to bed when you go to bed? So she's, very, uh, she's a very persuasive lawyer. I'll tell you, my son was just like that. He's the one that just passed the bar. He's the one that's Okay. She's on her way. Yeah. Yeah. I have uh, my, my six-year-old, Baruch Hashem, she's fine. I'm not telling you this to worry. But she, she broke her leg and she's in the hospital. They had to to do a little surgery yesterday. So she's in Joe DiMaggio and they have a rule because of flu season that if you're under, under 13, you can't come visit. So my Tamara again, she goes, you tell them, how could they call it a children's hospital if children can't visit? It's not a children's hospital. If children can't visit, they're sisters. She's going crazy. She's, she's already ready to be a lawyer. So despite her very cogent, well-articulated arguments, she's a kid and you're an adult. So who's, whose opinion are you going uh, to follow? Right, so God, I'll give it to you another analogy. You know, if there's, um, you're standing with your child and there's a car blocking your view, the child says it's time to cross the street. But you can see over the car, so you see there's another car coming. Your child is shorter, so they can't see as much. Their vision, their perspective is limited. So they say, come on, let's run across the street, let's go, let's go, let's run, let's go, there's nothing coming, let's go, let's go. But you're taller. So you see over the car and you see there's a car coming. So that perspective, so Hashem, we're, we're short. We see a limited amount. And we say, come on, Hashem, I want to go. I want this job. I want this marriage. I want this baby. I want this life. I want this thing. But Hashem sees over the car. He sees over the building. 
He sees over the, and he sees around. He sees through and around and over. And he says, not so fast, I see more. So why do we daven? Shouldn't we say, okay, Hashem, here's a conflict between what I think should happen and what you think should happen. It's all yours. I defer to what you think should happen because you see more. I don't want to get hit by a car. So I defer to you. Why do we daven at all? Why are we trying to change God's mind? If the Chazanisha's thesis of bitachon is true, that bitachon means I put my trust in you, Hashem, that everything that happens happens for a reason, and that all that you do is good for us. If that is true, why am I trying to change Hashem's mind? Why? It's a great question about davening, right? We're not trying to change Hashem's mind. What are we doing when we daven? It's self-soothing. Oh, interesting. When you daven, you're davening for yourself. You're not changing anything. So, wait, but what if you daven to Hashem and you say, "Help me get this job. Help me land that girl, that guy. Help me conceive that happens, child." You, and if it happens, then you say to yourself, "Well, I davened and, and God made it happen." But really, you, you made yourself feel good, and maybe you gave yourself positive energy. Maybe that's why it happened. Okay. Right, so there's one element of tefillah that the process of tefillah is cathartic, is healthy. But I think that there is still something more. We do try, the middle section of the Amidah is bakasha. We come and we say, I got a full list of people I want you to heal. I got people who are struggling with parnasah. God, I'd like you to change your mind. <laughs> Help them get income. I've got a list of this and a list of that and uh, Iran deal and Israel and uh, the, the terror and the knifing and the stab. I got a list of things, God, and I'm trying to influence your opinion. Why we're trying to influence God's opinion isn't His better than ours. So it's a basic question about, about tefillah. So there are many, many answers which are, which are offered. I think the most popular and probably the most profound is that we're not trying to change God when we daven. We're trying to, and maybe hint this is what you meant, we're trying to change ourselves. And when we become new people, we become worthy of a new what's best for us. So the old me, you're right, God, that was what was best for me. But through the process of emuna and bitachon and tefillah, I've become a new me. Right? The Hebrew word for prayer, the hitpalel, is the hitpa'el form of the verb, which is a reflexive form of the verb, which in Hebrew grammar, reflexive means something I do to myself. When I daven, I'm not trying to do something to God. I'm trying to do something to myself. I walk out of davening a changed person than the one who walked in. If I am exactly the same as the person who walked in, it's good that I davened, but it was not an effective davening experience. I'm supposed to have walked out. Davening is an exercise in amuna. It's an exercise in humility. It's an exercise in priorities. And it should recalibrate my compass in the beginning, in the middle, the end of every day. And I walk out a transformed person. I've reprioritized. I've recalibrated. I've reminded myself what's important. I've reworked my sense of amuna and so on when I've lost my way in the middle of the day. And so I've become transformed. So you're right, the old me was not deserving of whatever the judgment I was looking for. But the argument I'm making, and it's not the same argument, by the way, when the person appears before the judge in court, do they not say, I was a delinquent, I was horrible, but I've rehabilitated myself, judge. You're right, the old me, you should have thrown away the key, locked me up and thrown away the key. But this is the new me. And here's a list of people who are going to testify. And here's all kinds of affidavits from people who are going to tell you that I've rehabilitated myself. I'm a changed person, judge. I don't des- You're right. That punishment was accurate, was appropriate for the old me. But it's a new me. And that's exactly what we do each davening. Lehispalel, hitpalel, God, it's a new me. The new me is deserving of a new judgment. So I'm not asking you, I'm not asking to override your perspective with mine. I defer to yours. But I'm asking you to recalibrate your perspective because I'm a new me. 
But it is important to realize that implicit within every tefillah we say, implicit within every tefillah, many people don't appreciate this, is, Hashem, I'm about to tell you from the bottom of my heart what I'm asking you for, but I want you to know in the end of the day, if you think what you had in plan was better, I want you to do your plan. Implicitly. Implicitly. We don't always appreciate it. We don't always understand it. There was maybe eight or nine years ago, there was a speaker at the shul. I remember also this left a profound impact on me. There was a speaker at the shul who was from, uh, from England. Pesach Lewis brought him in. You knew him. He was a rabbi who had lost his wife to cancer. Left him with like five or six children. I don't remember the name. The rabbi spoke Shabbos afternoon. And he, I remember his, his thesis was, and nobody in the world could say this except someone like him who went through this. And he described the experience of losing his wife and how painful and difficult it's been and so on. And he said, bad things don't happen to good people. Painful things happen to good people. And he spoke about the fact that he listed an enormous number of good things that came about as a result of this loss. And he said, they don't at all take away from the pain of the loss. Given the choice, he would never ask for that loss. He'd rather not have any of those good things and not endure the pain of losing his wife. But he taught us that bad things don't happen to good people. Painful things happen to good people. And there's a world of difference between bad things happening to good people and painful things happening to good people. And, and he was talking about that's what bitachon is, is to realize that what I just went through was painful. And I don't appreciate the pain. I wish I never had the pain. And all the good in the world doesn't compensate for the fact that you made me go through that pain. But I'm not, I'm not going to call it bad. I'm going to call it painful. Painful things happen to good people, not, not bad things. So we, didn't, we never actually got to Revolbe here this week. But I think, uh, nevertheless, we had a little um, boost of emunah. And, and again, we, we reminded ourselves that for the Chazanish, Bitachon is not God's going to make things unfold the way I want. Bitachon is not, I love life and it's all going to work out exactly the way I want. Bitachon is, I've done my best and now I'm in your hands. The rest of the way it's going to work out is the way you choose to let it work out. And I have faith and trust that whatever you're going to do is for a reason. And I can't, it is, it is like getting a Valium every day. It's like taking the greatest upper every day to do that. The calm it brings to your life. I mentioned on Shabbos the Dibna Magid's example of the peddler, no problem. The peddler who walks through town carrying suitcases full of his heavy wares. And he's walking and walking, schlepping his heavy suitcases. He's collapsing under their weight. And somebody goes by in a horse and buggy, a carriage. And he says to him, come, hop on in. I'm going to the same town. I'll give you a ride. And they're riding a half an hour in. The wagon driver turns around and he sees the peddler is holding the heavy suitcases in his lap. So he says to him, you know, you could put them down. So the guy answers, no, 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 I feel so bad. It's so nice that you're giving me the ride. I feel terrible that once you're giving me the ride, at least let me lift the suitcases. Let me bear the weight of the suitcases. So the wagon driver says to him, you fool. You fool. You're in the, the wagon anyway. Once you're in the wagon, put the suitcases down and enjoy the ride. And so the Dibna Magid says that's exactly what our life is like. We have all kinds of heavy baggage. Anger, fear, worry, angst, uncertainty. All this baggage, it's heavy, it's heavy, it takes its toll. Carrying it, schlepping it, it's heavy, it's heavy, it's heavy. If you have a Munah and Bitochon and you realize you're in God's carriage, He's giving us that ride, put down your suitcase and enjoy the ride. If we put down our suitcase, you can enjoy the You don't have to carry the heavy baggage. So Amuna and Bitochon is the means to put down the suitcase. The way you put down the suitcase is realize that you're in the wagon anyway. You're in the wagon anyway. You might as well put down the suitcase. 
Hashem's in control anyway. Your worry is not going to change anything anyway. You might as well put down the baggage and enjoy the ride. So if we, if we apply the Chazanisha's definition of bitachon, we improve our physical health, mental health, emotional health, spiritual health. We are slower to get angry. Our relationships improve. There are unbelievable benefits. But never think that Amuna and Bitachon demands of you to just, you know, say whatever God ordains for us, we take it lying down. It is an expression of Amuna to protest and object sometimes to Hashem's decision. It's an exercise of Amuna. It leaves you closer to Hashem if you actually speak up and, and we feel that. But in the end of the day, like Avram and like Moshe, we have to accept ultimately what Hashem decides. We're not trying to change His mind. We're trying to change us. By changing us, to make ourselves better positioned for a new, better for us. All right, we'll continue next Wednesday morning. If you've not yet put your... Uh,